Welcome back to the program. Back in the dark days of the Cold War, John Le Carre published The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. It shined a light, as only fiction can sometimes do, on foreign policy not as a clear choice between good and evil, but one where the methods that Western intelligence would use disturbingly resemble those used by their opponents. The distance between us and them became blurred. It exposed the Cold War not as a battle between light and darkness, but a place where both sides meandered in the twilight of moral ambiguity. In the days following 9-11, we as a nation, our policy and our intelligence service, the CIA, would once again begin to blur those lines. In many ways, the actions of the president would arguably be reminiscent of Richard Nixon's comments in his famous interview with David Frost, where he said, talking about Watergate at the time, if the president does it, it means it's not illegal. My guest today, John Rizzo, was at the center of that storm, as he has been at the center of everything the CIA has done for the past 34 years. John Rizzo has had a 34-year career as a lawyer for the CIA, culminating with seven years as the agency's chief legal officer. In the post-9-11 era, he helped create and implement the full spectrum of aggressive counter-terrorist operations against al-Qaeda, including the so-called Enhanced Interrogation Program. Since retiring from the CIA, he served as senior counsel to a Washington law firm and a visiting scholar at the Hoover Institution. It is my pleasure to welcome John Rizzo here to talk about his book, Company Man, 30 Years of Controversy and Crisis in the CIA. John Rizzo, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me, Jeff. Great to have you here. Talk first a little bit about how you came to the agency. It was really your, your interest in, in the Church Commission and another very tough time that the CIA had that drew your interest originally. Yeah, that's right. I mean, actually, my long career was bookmarked by uh, two major controversies. Uh, I arrived in the mid-70s on the heels of the Church Committee uh, investigations. This is Frank Church, uh, the chairman of the committee, um, into first time really ripped the ripped the cover off CIA deeds and uh, misdeeds, frankly, in the 50s and 60s, the assassination plots, the drug experiments on unsuspecting humans. At the time, I was a couple of years out of law school. Uh, I knew nothing about CIA. And back in those days, there wasn't much in the public domain about CIA. But I, I would follow the the, uh, the church committee proceedings with the you know combination of uh, fascination and uh, and uh, revulsion uh, to tell you the truth about what the CIA had been doing uh, but it did occur to me that I have no idea I had no idea whether the CIA had lawyers but if they didn't I figured they're going to need some so I just uh, I just sent my resume uh, sort of a shot in the dark I had no special in or anything and to what extent did that experience, the way that, that you came to it, the things that caught your attention originally, the deeds, as you say, and misdeeds, to what extent, if any, did that shape your view of the agency, what it should and shouldn't be doing during your many years of service? Well, I mean, it was it was a grounding uh, experience uh, because, as, as I tried to um, outline, my books were my own personal experience with the agency sort of paralleled the evolution of the modern CIA with the growth of congressional oversight, for instance. And uh, But, you know, every few years, uh, you know, we can all think back on it, Jeff, every few years, something in the headlines, there's some CIA-related scandal or flap or something. And, and coming in, frankly, at the 
tail end and as a result of the first major public controversy involving the CIA, um, you know, unfortunately in some respects, but it, it was a it was a formative experience and one that would repeat itself in different iterations uh, throughout my career. And yet, when these things repeat themselves over and over again, up to and including the era immediately following 9-11, it's always important to understand, I suppose, the context of the time, the sense of, of what attitudes were, what public policy was, public opinion was. And yet, there had to be, it seems to be, certain compass points along the way which should have been immutable, particularly from a legal perspective. Talk about that. Yeah, well, you know, I I, um, I see we're talking about the immediate 9/11 aftermath and the creation of the uh, enhanced interrogation program, including the waterboarding. And uh, it is true that I was uh, I was present at the uh, creation of that program. What's I mean, what's I think sort of sometimes lost now. Now that we're 12 years, you know, removed from 9/11, is the, is the, the period of time where these where this program came to be, which was just a few months after 9-11. As you recall, Jeff, the entire country was in the midst of the throes of fear and dread, mm-hmm. not not if another second wave of attacks were going to come somewhere against the homeland, but when. And so it was, it was, it was a, you know, a, a scary, perilous time for the country. And this, this interrogation program was created... Uh, in that sense of crisis and in the sense of time is of the essence. We had a, we had just captured a senior al-Qaeda detainee named Abu Zubaydah in February of 2002. Uh, our experts were convinced that if there was going to be a second wave of attacks, he would know about them. And he was basically telling our interrogators and the FBI were first questioning him that I know what you want me to tell you and I'm not going to tell you and you can't make me. So that was the genesis. To what extent were there concerns, however, even within the context of the fear that that admittedly was so pervasive in the country, and certainly fear in Washington that it might happen again, and, and the administration wanting to do everything to prevent it, that in fact, from a legal perspective, there were obstacles and problems along the way. I mean, looking at the UN Convention Against Torture, this very clear language that much of this flies in the face of. Yeah, um, well, I was certainly mindful of that. I mean, I, you know, I should also make it clear that when these techniques were first proposed to me, they were they were developed inside of CIA, by the way. I mean, that's where they began. Uh, that's where the idea uh, emanated. Uh, when they were proposed to me, I had never heard any anything even close to this before, the way they were described. I had no idea what waterboarding was, but I I had never, and mercifully, I had never had any exposure to the torture statute in my career. I didn't need to. Some of these sounded, sounded a few, you know, some of them, the, less, the, the more benign ones, sounded almost like something out of a Three Stooges slapstick routine, but, but waterboarding and a few of the others did sound terrifying to me. Now, now I didn't know on the spot, I did not know whether it crossed the line into torture because torture is a legally defined term. But I knew that they were unprecedented, and I also knew that that inevitably somewhere down the road the agency was going to be made to have to answer for what it was doing. So that's why I decided to go to the Department of Justice, you know, the ultimate legal authority for interpretation of laws, and get and get a judgment from them. Now, if they come back with memos saying 
this constitutes torture, we wouldn't have done it. But as you, as you know, you know, these memos back to me, addressed to me, what has become known as the uh, torture memos, uh, concluded that the activities did not violate the torture statute. But, you know, it was never something, not just I, but anyone who was involved at the beginning of CIA looked on as something, you know, preferable or we were eager to do it or, or, or you know, strongly advocating to do it. We we collectively thought at that point in time it was the only feasible way to possibly get information uh, about the next terrorist attack. To what extent was there the sense that in going to the Justice Department and not relying on your own counsel, your own judgment within the CIA, that it was allowing it to move in a more political direction? Well, I mean, I was, you know, I take full responsibility. It was my decision to go to seek the just, to seek consultation with the Justice Department. I certainly, as I say, I was no, I, I, I was no expert on the on the breadth and length of the torture statute or the Geneva Convention. Uh, I went to the Justice Department for two reasons. First of all, if if these things were deemed to be illegal, that was not my. I did not have the final call on that. That only could come from the Department of Justice. And secondly, I wanted, if our people were going to be involved in anything like this, I wanted to get the maximum legal uh, protection for them so they could, so, so they could do their work, do, do what they were told to do in, in a way that they knew was, you know, was legally authorized. So that was what I mean, that's those considerations have prompted me to go, and I knew. I mean, you know, I knew I'd been around the agency long enough, and I've been through enough crises, none quite like this one, of course. But to know that this politically, that going down this path of this program was going to be politically perilous uh, at some point in time. Of course, the the other context is the famous question: What did the president know, and when did he know it? And there seems to be some question about this. What you write about in Company Man is different in some respects than what George Bush wrote about in his memoir, and even different in some ways than what you wrote about in an article for the Hoover Institution publication back in 2011. Yeah, on the uh, on the uh, with respect to the uh, to uh, what I say in the book about uh, President Bush's knowledge, uh, you know, I read a there's a passage in his, in his 2010 memoir. Uh, in which he he reconstructs a conversation he had with with the then CIA director uh, George Tenet. It, this is in the 2002-2003 time frame when the interrogation program was in its early stages, and he quotes himself as as telling George that uh, having George you know brief him on what all these new techniques were, and the president instructs George to. You know, he approves the techniques, a couple of them he says he vetoed. None of that, when I read that, all of that was news to me. Uh, and I actually went back and, and uh, went back when I read Bush, um, President Bush's memoir, I went back and, and talked to George Tennant, who I remained friendly with, great respect for. I said, because I had never heard any of this, and I was, in that year I was dealing with this program daily and with George Tennant on the program daily. He told me he had absolutely no recollection of ever having such conversations with President Bush. That that that, is, that he had never briefed President Bush 
at least in, in, in that time frame, on the interrogation program. So that's what I found jarring. If President Bush had attributed this discussion he had with, you know, with Condoleezza Rice or the Vice President Cheney, that would have been one thing. But he was, he was, he was quoting, you know, a conversation he, he claimed to have had with Tennant, and Tennant, to me, said he didn't remember anything like that. And I just wonder how could he have, how could Tennant, how could anyone have forgotten a conversation about the, with the President of the United States about something like that? But you talk in this article for the Hoover Institution publication back in 2011 about the president signing days after the attack this presidential memo of notification, a directive to the CIA authorizing these covert actions. Right, I did. Let me, uh, I don't want to get too down in the legal weeds for your listeners, but he did. He issued a directive several days after uh, 9-11. It's called a presidential finding memorandum of notification. It's basically marching orders to the CIA to 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 launch a full, all-out, unprecedented uh, uh, um, war against Al Qaeda. Uh, in that memorandum, he did authorize CIA to capture, detain, and question high-level Al Qaeda uh, operatives to elicit, you know, their future plans and intentions to elicit the location of Bin Laden. For that reason, there there was nothing, however, in that document, which I which actually I played a role in drafting, that that specified by what means those interrogations would take place. When we wrote that document, Jeff, a few days after 9/11, as I say, I had nothing, I had no idea at that point that there would be an enhanced interrogation program. I certainly didn't know. I had never heard of waterboarding, and none of us had who were involved. So, and it was not. I mean, it's important to note it wouldn't have been legally necessary for the for President Bush to specifically sign off personally on each and every one of those techniques. So there's no, I mean, in reality, what I wrote in the, in the Hoover piece in 2011 is accurate, as is what I wrote in my book, expressing my doubts about the Bush tenant conversation. If you can follow that, I'm sure, sorry, it might be a little obscure. Not at all. Moving back from from the legal side of it, talk a little bit about the attitudes about what was going on beyond the legal perspective. I mean, you describe, for example, the conversations that took place in the White House Situation Room with George Tennant describing on a case-by-case basis what was being done. There's a real chilling aspect to that. Well, yeah, I mean, there is, and I... I you know, there was a, there was a, a, it was a very uh, sober uh, uh, series of uh, discussions. Um, again, you have to remember the context of the time. This was 2002 into early 2003. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was a certain. I mean, sitting there at the time, I mean, I have to tell you, it was a certain surrealistic uh, uh, feeling that that I was getting. Uh, but. And it's you know, and I I probably could have done a better job of recreating the atmosphere, the tension inside that room, but I tried to be I tried to reflect the reality as much as I could. But I you know I take your point that that some of it does sound rather rather uh, uh, chilling and uh, foreboding. But that was you know keep in mind that was the atmosphere in the country at the time. Talk a little bit about whether or not 
in your view, and there are many still classified reports, one done by the Senate, one done by the CIA, whether or not any of this worked, whether or not any of this had any real effect in gathering information? Yeah, well, of course, I don't, you know, I've been away, I no longer have clearances. I have no idea what's in the Senate report, and I have no idea what's in the CIA uh, rebuttal to that report, which, you know, according to media reports, is quite is quite uh, uh, vigorous. Um, and according to media reports, the Senate uh, report is going to conclude uh, that the, I mean, basically, as I understand it, that the program yielded no mm-hmm. benefits, that, 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 that couldn't have been acquired without resorting to these uh, techniques. Um, I mean, all I can all I can all I can say is, uh, you know, I was there. Certainly, I was there from the beginning. I was there at the, you know, during the, the course of the entire program, which lasted, you know, close to six years before before it ended. Uh, all of that time, the career CI people who were involved in it on a day to day basis, you know, these are not. These are not political appointees. These are these are career public servants, analysts, operatives, uh, scientists, psychologists. They were all convinced. I mean, they weren't gloating about, but they were they were all convinced, remain convinced, that the program was yielding otherwise unobtainable intelligence. Now, I mean, the ultimate question is, you know, could this intelligence been obtained? Without resort to these kinds of, you know, harsh measures, and certainly there, there is, as you know, there have been, you know, FBI interrogators who are involved who who have asserted that they would have gotten the same information without having to resort to this kind of stuff. Now, I honestly, Jeff, I, you know, I think that's unknowable. Perhaps, perhaps that that could have been, but I keep harping on this. But the context of the time, how long would it have taken normal? question and answers to have gotten the same information out of these hardened, in most cases, psychotic uh, uh, terrorists. I mean, that's the, that to me is, is was, was what made the whole situation so difficult and so dire. Uh, you know, for, for, and also, I mean, just from a practical standpoint, finally, my final point on this is, why would, why would, ask yourself, why would the CIA, I mean, why would I, uh, Continued a program for six years, a program that, you know, as, as time passed from 9-11, became increasingly politically controversial, ultimately turning toxic. Why would we persevere? Why would, why would we continue to have faith in a program, continue a program that we all knew was going to lead to damage to our professional reputations, ultimately? If we didn't think it was yielding something, I mean the 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 agency is not is is not a sadistic institution. It's also not a masochistic institution. I can you know I, I can tell you uh, in all, all sincerity we wouldn't have kept doing this kind of thing if it was not gaining anything. There'd be no reason to do it that way. Perhaps the key word is that that it is an institution, and after a while, six years is a long time, that it took on a life of its own because nobody was there to stop it or question it or really call it what it was early on. It began to become the norm. Yeah, yeah. I, I you know, one of the things I one of the things I uh, I uh, say in the book is in terms of 
mistakes. I mean, you know, I made a, obviously a number of mistakes during the course of my career. Uh, but with respect to the 9-11 program, the way it was developed, the way it was carried out, my major regret, uh, and this was, you know, this was the Bush White House, but it was also on the shoulders of those of the CIA who had been long, around long enough to know better. What we should have done at the beginning was brief the entire membership of the House and Senate Intelligence Committee, about 27 members of Congress. As it was, the the uh, the Bush White House insisted that the program, the knowledge of the program, only be limited to to the congressional leadership, eight people, and we went along with that. I went along with that. That I think was a was a was not only bad policy, but it was it was a huge mistake because. What we should have done from the beginning is expose as many people in Congress as we could to this top-secret program to give members of Congress the opportunity to compel them, really, to either endorse the program or to tell us that this is immoral, illegal, and to stop it, and it would have been stopped. And we didn't do that. We kept it to too, too few people, and... You know, you know, as everyone knows now, uh, increasingly, because most members of Congress had no idea what the actual program consisted of, uh, they it became increasingly uh, controversial and ultimately uh, fatal to the program. So, so that was a that was something that we should have done, uh, and I regret deeply that we didn't do it. Was there an opportunity for anything to change, or did anything change when George Tennant left? No, well, you know, every CIA director is different. Um, just to clarify, after George Tennant left, Porter Goff succeeded George Tennant. Uh, Porter was there from late '04 till the uh, summer of '06. Then Hayden came, but and then Leon Panetta, of course, followed old uh, Hayden when the uh, Bush, uh, the Obama administration came into office. No, uh, do you mean general with respect to the counterterrorist program, or just in general at CIA? In, in general, it? an opportunity because, as we talk about, a lot of this becomes institutionalized. Oftentimes, when there's a change of leadership, that's the only opportunity to begin to rethink those things that have become so ordinary, even things like torture. I see. I see. Uh, well, you know, when when Porter Goss succeeded George Tennant, he came in. Now Porter was chairman of the House Intelligence House of Representatives Intelligence Committee uh, prior to becoming CIA director, so he was one of the, actually one of the few members of Congress who were fully briefed on the interrogation program. Now, so uh, so he came in. I mean, he got deeply immersed in the details, wanted to assure himself that it was the right thing to do, necessary thing to do, and and concluded it was. Then two years, uh, a little over a year later. Uh, Porter Goss uh, leaves, is replaced by Mike Hayden, General Hayden, you know, a long-time, lifelong intelligence professional, uh, did a top-to-bottom personal scrub. He, unlike Porter, had never been involved in the program prior to that time. This was 2006. The program was very controversial by then. Uh, and General Hayden, after diving into all the details, also concluded that the program uh well, it needed to be continued, but it needed to be refined, and among other things, that more members of Congress uh, ought to be apprised of. So each of them, in their own way, reviewed the bidding, uh, as they should have. Every CI director, of course, who comes in, 
have to take ownership of whatever program he's uh, inherited. What do you think is the long-term impact of all of this? First of all, as far as the CIA is concerned. Well, I would be uh, I would be astonished if uh, if the CIA were to ever contemplate uh, you know building in the future, let's say, a secret prison, or to conduct interrogations of anyone, you know, including terrorists, of course. Uh, Using anything coming close to the techniques that were uh, employed in during the enhanced interrogation program, that is, I can't see that ever going to, to happen again, and I can't, I, I, I don't countenance a president, a future president, ever directing the CIA to do anything uh, like that in the future. So, I mean, I think, I think um, CIA is. It's safe to say it's permanently out of the uh, detention and interrogation business. Is that a political decision or a political reality as you see it, or a moral and, and or legal one? Well, I think it, I think it's yeah, certainly you know Washington is a political town, and White Houses are political, and and uh, uh, you know CI, a CIA director is a politically appointed uh, official, as is the uh, general counsel, by the way. Um, so sure, there is a political element in all of that, but you know, I mean, I mean, you know, CIA is not tone deaf, and certainly presidents are not tone deaf to to the to the um, to moral dictates and the un, you know undeniably huge moral furor that that came to be as a result of this program. So I think that's you know that's a, that will be an equally strong deterrent factor. You talk about in company man that you could have early on essentially put a stop to it. Do you regret that you didn't? No, I mean I don't. I you know I've had ample time to reflect on that. Um, uh, again, again, Jeff. I'm sorry to keep going back to this, but putting myself into that same time mm-hmm. a few months after nine eleven, if I had if I had stopped it. Before it actually even got, came close to getting started, you know that would have been—I mean—that would have avoided all the controversy, all the all the opprobrium that came that would come in the later years. But what if I had? I mean, I'm just you know playing this out for a second. Mm-hmm. What if I had stopped it then? What if I went back and said, "Yeah, I should have never, never even let this thing you know get started." But what if I had done that, which I could have done? And and in fact, the beta the the detainee did in fact have information about a, an imminent attack, and and that imminent attack took place on the homeland, and there were hundreds and thousands or thousands of people dead in rubble again. I would have known. I would have known in the aftermath of that 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 I flinched, that the agency flinched, was risk averse. Remember that term. Remember that criticism mm-hmm. after nine eleven about about a about engaging in in practices that our professionals had concluded was the only way to have gotten that information out of the debate, and we didn't do it. Now, if that were the case, and there had been that second that second attack against the homeland, knowing knowing that I had stopped it from starting, I I, I couldn't countenance the thought of having to live with that. In many ways, though counter to what you were saying earlier, I mean, that is an argument for future CIA directors, future presidents, future general counsels, to do it again. Well, I don't, you know, I, I had the, uh, you know, I was the, uh, 
I was faced with an unprecedented uh, situation at the time. God forbid if any any future CIA director, any future president, uh, any future CIA general counsel is faced with with a similar set of circumstances, namely a, a, a huge attack, terrorist attack on the homeland, uh, they will have the experience I had to uh, draw upon. And I don't even think a second, I don't think even if there is a second attack, and God knows that we all pray there isn't, I can't see any anybody in, a, in, in authority, any lawyer, any president, any CI director ever, ever, going down the road that uh, we went down again. Finally, John, what do you miss most about the agency and about your job? Well, you know, Jeff, it's a funny thing. It's, uh, it, it's uh, you know, I, was, I spent 34 years inside this secret bubble. And, you know, let's say it's human nature. It's, it's an exclusive club that no one from the outside can ever fully know or understand. And one of the enticing things about it is you get to know secrets. You get you get to know interesting secrets, fascinating secrets, sometimes humorous secrets. But you're in the know, and you know everyone likes to know secrets. Now I don't know any secrets, and honestly, I still get twinges about that. John Rizzo, his book is Company Man: Thirty Years of Controversy and Crisis in the CIA. John, I thank you so much for your time and for spending some time with our listeners today. No, I appreciate it. I'm flattered to be invited, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.